Welcome to the Old Man Selling Podcast. I'm John Passmore, and this time we're going to look at some islands, consider some colours, and I have an extract from my book, The Voyage, which you might like to hear. And this is called Heat. We made three miles towards our destination last night. It wasn't as bad as it sounds. In the same 11 hours, we sailed six miles through the water. It's just that we weren't going in the right direction. Yes, you guessed it. On the hottest day of the year in England, there was still drizzle in the north of Scotland, drizzled and incessant headwinds. I've worked it out. We have had headwinds now for seven days in a row. First of all, northwesterlies on the way up the east coast towards the Orkneys, then westerlies across the top, strong to near gale westerlies to make sure the sea stayed good and rough after the full gale that saw Samsara scuttling into Fair Isle. And finally, just as I get to the top of the Hebrides, ready for the left hand down a bit to St Kilda, what do I get? First of all, a flat calm to announce the coming change in the weather, and then, can you believe it, a light southwesterly. And more drizzle. Some things are just not fair. There's only a hundred miles to go after something like 850, during which there hasn't been a single complaint. Well, I don't remember it. And now this. I was all ready to enjoy today. I had taken advantage of last night's calm to wash and change my clothes for the first time since Fair Isle. I even got undressed and climbed into a sleeping bag. It was heaven. And now I poke my head out of the hatch and find a slight headwind and drizzle. What does Ken Bruce call it on Radio 2? Drich. Of course, I could cheer myself up with a French fancy or even a slice of bread and apricot jam. I made a loaf of bread in the calm. I must write about that. But a sugar hit is like cocaine. It doesn't last very long and then you want more. I looked at the little electronic weather station. Pressure rising. Not that you noticed. But, wait a minute, what's this? Twelve and a half degrees centigrade, as southern England prepares for a new hottest day of the year record. Well, that was a couple of hours ago. Now I can tell you that I wouldn't swap places with anyone on Brighton Beach. The charcoal stove is fired up once I got the seawater out of it. How did that get in there? I just checked the thermometer again, 23 and a half. Mind you, I didn't notice this for a while. I had made the mistake of sitting on the leeward, that's the downhill berth, to write this. It seemed that on the leeward berth, the laptop was less likely to slide off my lap. But you have to remember that hot air rises, which means that all the cold air burrows its way underneath onto the leeward berth. I'm now sitting to weather as us old salts would call it, and I've had to move along the berth away from the stove. We're still not going in the right direction, but it doesn't seem to matter so much. It's coffee time. The problem now, yes, there's always a problem, is that while I have a whole spare box of cherry bakewell tarts, there are only two French fancies left. Of course, I could have that slice of bread, but the loaf smelled so good when it came out of the oven that I had four slices there and then. And it doesn't look so big now. Mm.
the Flannan Islands are uninhabited. I'm not surprised. They've got an automatic lighthouse and two landing places with concrete steps, but one set was washed away years ago and the other is no longer maintained and might not be there even now. But who's to say? All the same, I'm beginning to think I live here. These fifteen lumps of granite looked rather beautiful in a desolate sort of way as I approached at sunset last night. There is some grass growing and a lot of white from the thousands of seabirds which clearly think this is the perfect place to call home. Nevertheless, I passed in the night a few miles off on the way to St Kilda, which is also uninhabited, but hasn't always been. Where lies a story? The problem with passing the flannel islands at night is that, steering by the wind, what would happen if the wind were to change while I was asleep? I could be on the rocks. The secret here is to work out how long you want to sleep for, then work out how far you could travel in the wrong direction in that time, and then set two alarms to make sure that you don't. All the same, it doesn't make for a peaceful night. More than once I woke before the alarm, lying there, listening to the water going past the hull. There was a tendency to wonder what should have caused this sudden wakefulness. After all, it appeared that I was not just awake, I was fully alert. Something was up. Was Chiefy keeping watch? Of course, it could be the islands themselves. There's something odd about the Flannan Islands. Every Scot knows the story, how the three lighthouse keepers mysteriously disappeared a few days before Christmas in the year 1900. Conspiracy theorists had a field day with this one. They had been captured by pirates, eaten by seabirds, abducted by aliens. One way and another, it would be foolish to go back to sleep with that sort of thing going on. So, unzip the sleeping bag. God, it's cold. It's also dark. Wait a minute, I'm wearing the indoor woolly hat which rolls down over the top half of my face and blocks out the light. I'm blundering around in a blindfold. First, I check the plotter which shows that the boat is still on course, the islands are well astern. A group of fishing boats ten miles away, I'll have to watch out for them. Unpredictable things, fishing boats, and once they've got their gear down, they have right of way over everything else, rather like cyclists in Holland. Pull the hatch back and stick my head out. Now it's really cold. Boat seems okay. Flannan Island's still there at a safe distance. Doesn't it ever get dark in these latitudes? And this happened two or three times, quite apart from the alarms going off every hour. So, what with one thing and another, it wasn't a particularly good night. I shall be glad to find some peace in St Kilda. I can tell you two things about St Kilda. All the people left in 1930, unable to cope any longer with the hard life on this desolate piece of granite 60 miles out in the Atlantic. Secondly, part of the reason was because the island's gene pool wasn't what it was. 
For hundreds of years there had been a tradition that if a young man could climb to the top of one of the gigantic sea stacks which rise hundreds of feet out of the ocean next to the largest island, stand on the stone at the top, join his hands in front of him and then jump through the hoop made by his arms without falling off and plunging to certain death, then for one night he could have the pick of all the women on the island. It was great for the young men. Who knows, some of the young women might have been quite keen too. A man who could do all that must have seemed like Justin Bieber and Brad Pitt all rolled into one. In fact, if it hadn't been for the arrival of the Reverend John Mackay in 1865, this resilient micro-community might still be there subsisting on sheep and seabirds and defying the outside world. But even before the new minister got around to banning the singing of anything but psalms, dancing, games and storytelling, he put a stop to the heathen practice of the Mistress Stone. So, dropping anchor in Village Bay, you might forgive me some preconceptions. After all, the pilot book makes much of the comprehensive bylaws of this World Heritage Site, the necessity to seek permission to land from the Warden. Undoubtedly, it is a fascinating place. The old houses are still there, and the original black houses without windows or chimneys, where the people took what shelter they could with their animals to keep them warm when the peat gave out. And then, of course, there is the quaintly named street, the new houses built in the 1800s, two windows and a chimney. If I'd read up about it properly, I would have known that's not the whole story. In 1957, there had been a handful of MOD personnel manning the radar station over the hill, but as far as I imagined, it was just the warden living in the Reverend Mackay's old manse next to the kirk. What an amazing existence! The idea of spending a couple of days anchored in the bay, sharing the warden's solitude, was too much to resist, and exactly two weeks after leaving Suffolk, the anchor went down in Village Bay. I could see it, six metres down, in water as clear as air. More chain rattled over the gypsy, full astern with the engine to dig it in, and then switch off. Silence! Then, beep, beep, beep. You know that annoying sound which large earth-moving vehicles make when they reverse? That they make incessantly because they're always reversing? Well, that is the sound of St Kilda today. It just so happens that now the World Heritage people have seized on it, the place has to be done up which means that now it is not only home to the Warden and the MOD, but also 25 construction workers living in a row of green porter cabins. There are hoardings with artists' impressions of how the St Kilda accommodation and infrastructure project will be in keeping with the ambiance of the historic location uh, once they've torn down the hideous power station and taken away all the porter cabins. In the meantime, there's quite a community. John Sikorsky, who calls himself the Ranger, not the Warden, 
has a seabird ranger as well, and an archaeologist. Altogether, you have almost as many people as the 37 islanders who were evacuated to the mainland all those years ago. Their names are written on slates in the fireplaces of their old houses. And in the kirk, on the open page of the Bible, there is a list of deaths from the 1870s, mostly in infancy. For £190, you can take a high-speed trip from Harris, two and a half hours each way, which leaves five hours on the island. Actually, that's plenty. The gift shop doesn't take long. There was also what appeared to be a converted fishing boat, which took eight passengers on a sort of mystery tour. The mystery being that the skipper would decide on the destination only after listening to the weather forecast. Or you could join a cruise ship. Yes, cruise ships call it St Kilda. John the ranger goes aboard to give a briefing and to warn the passengers not to leave the village. Not only are there no fences or warning signs to stop them falling off the cliffs, but if the weather should turn, that's 300 people who have to be ferried back to the ship before the swell threatens to capsize the tenders at the pier. It hasn't happened yet, but just thinking about it, where would you put 300 cruise passengers for a night on St Kilda? The black houses? There are plenty of sheep to keep them warm. You may have got the impression that I'm quite settled on my boat. In fact, I have every intention of spending most of my time on this boat for the next 50 years. And yes, that is not a typographical error. And yes, at the time of writing, which is 2017, I'm 68 years old, which means that I'm awarding myself a life expectancy of 118 years. Well, let's call it 120. Why do I feel so confident? Because I have a, a secret ingredient, an all-natural nutrition supplement, which I believe to be so effective that I do not carry any pharmaceutical products on samsara at all. Not even an aspirin. You can find out all about it on the Good Health page of the blog, oldmansailing.com. Start putting together the perfect day and sunshine has to come high on the list. Yes, the sun is shining. Just a few high clouds, but they're mostly on the horizon. And in this patch of Atlantic, it is a day of blue skies. Blue skies and blue seas, that deep blue you only get in deep water. And here, just south of the Hebrides Terrace Sea Mount, the seabed is over 2,000 metres below the keel. And progress is on the list too. The feeling that the destination is getting closer all the time. That is where the single-handed sailor has the advantage. He can change the destination. Yesterday, the destination was causing trouble. The whole point of coming to Scotland had been to take part in the rival Round Rockall Rally. It is 50 years since the first rival yacht was launched, and the Owners' Association had the idea of marking the event by taking a number of these tough, seaworthy boats to that desolate lump of granite 200 miles out in the Atlantic, which gave its name to a whole sea area in the shipping forecast. In fact, only three made it to the jumping-off point in Castle Bay on the Isle of Barra, 
and one of them saw Rockall as only part of their big picture, which was to circumnavigate the Outer Hebrides, and this meant starting with a 25-mile detour. There was also a plan to land two people on the rock. After all, landing on Rockall is about as common as landing on the moon. Clearly, this was going to be quite an operation. It would take hours. None of which seemed to fit in with my own big picture. For me, Rockall was just a turning point to get a good angle to the prevailing winds going down the Atlantic where I was due to meet the family in the Azores. I had 24 days to do it, 1,500 miles, so no time to waste. Certainly no fuel to waste motoring into the wind and tide for the detour when there was a perfectly good shortcut between the islands. I told the other boats I would see them on the other side. I never did. Halfway to Rockall there was still no sign of them. Then the wind died and back to the west. The other hundred miles might take another two days. Meanwhile the other boats were loaded with fuel. One had an extra fifty litres lashed on deck. They could turn on their engines just as soon as the speed started dropping. By the time I got there, the historic ascent of Rockall would be history. That was when the chart of the Atlantic came out. The Azorean island of São Miguel lay 1,330 miles away on a bearing of 220 degrees. Uh, let's just try an experiment to see what course we can lay. Lift the chain off the self-steering, put the helm up, trim the other tack. Not too close, she'll have to look after herself. Now, what course does the pampas give us? Hey, 223 degrees, almost a straight line to the Airbnb Tamsin booked in Ponta Delgada. So it was that sunset found me standing in the companionway with a can of Green King IPA, cool from the beer locker in the bilges watching the wind vane tracking us into Irish waters, there was a great big sigh close by. It was a sound so familiar, a reminder of a life which is returning in almost every detail, and there, just off the quarter, so close as to be practically within reach, were two pilot whales surfacing, as they always seemed to, so close together that they might have been joined at the hip. Within five minutes there were a dozen of them spread out astern in twos and threes, their blunt jet-black heads breaking out of the white crests, the air filled with their explosive sighs. One group of four curled again and again, pressed together so closely they appeared as one. They couldn't have needed to breathe that often. I think they wanted to look at me. When had I seen this before? When was the last time I was alone in a boat embarking on an ocean crossing? I worked it out, 27 years ago. And yet everything was the same, as if no time had passed at all, as if these were the same friends come to check on me, as they might periodically, just to see that all is well. Hello, I called out to them. Hello again. Silly, really. And then something peculiar happened. One of the whales broke away from the others. That was odd. To see one swimming alone. Then suddenly it leapt right out of the water, not high in the air like a dolphin or doing a somersault or anything, but it did turn right over on its back, 
I could see its pectoral fins quite clearly as it splashed back into the water. Again and again this one whale performed its manoeuvre immediately astern while the others continued to rise and fall on either side. It might be fanciful. Was there some sort of communication going on here? Because there are more accounts of whales and dolphins appearing to communicate with sailors than you can imagine. I like to think that what this one was saying was, Welcome back. And yes, it's great to be back. Yellow it's only if you have children that you can name your favourite colour. After all, who else asks you? Yellow is mine. I used to paint my bedroom yellow so that it would be like waking up with the sun shining, even if it wasn't. Back in the days when I thought I was going to be retiring rich and having my perfect boat built to order, that 38-foot uh, steel cutter, she was going to be called Shansi with a little painting of a Chinese womble on the wind vane. I used to ghost-write womble stories for Elizabeth Beresford as she wrote the books. That's how long ago it was, and Shansi, the boat, was going to be bright yellow, yellow hull, yellow decks, yellow mast, and caramel-coloured sails. Quite apart from the advantage of being somewhat noticeable, the good thing about yellow is that the rust would look quite attractive. Well, plans are made to be changed, and Samsara has a white hull and grey deck. Not the right shade of grey, but that is another story, and rather a tiresome one. But what was all this yellow that I've been finding today? About a hundred miles west of Ireland, the wind has been light all day and finally died away to nothing. Well, not really nothing. I'm sure a lightweight racing boat with a full crew would have kept moving, but Samsara is no lightweight, and I draw the line at sitting up at the helm all night for the sake of putting an extra knot on the speed. Instead, I took everything down, shut the hatch, and went to bed with two alarms leapfrogging each other. It was the four o'clock alarm that was just in time to show the little boat icon on the plotter actually moving but in the direction of Newfoundland instead of the Azores. That's what you get with the wind vane. The wind changes, and so does the heading. In the normal course of events, four o'clock being somewhat before breakfast, I wouldn't be up doing much more than resetting the steering. But this voyage is a bit like being in a pursuit race. The family arrive in Ponta Delgada at 18.25 on August the 1st and progress yesterday didn't leave much leeway. So, pulling on foul-weather gear over my pyjama shorts, clammy but convenient, I started crawling around the dew-covered deck setting sail, which is not as easy when you're pointing in the wrong direction and don't want to start the engine because you crank so much grease into the stern gear it would be a waste to turn the prop shaft. So headsail first to get her moving and a flow of air to help the mainsail go up without fouling the shrouds. Leeward lazy jacks off because it would be definitely fouling those. And then back to the cockpit and haul. Yes, it worked. Don't forget the topping lift and trim to the course and amazingly 
bubbles start to move past the cockpit. The log wakes up and registers a speed, well, not exactly a speed, but movement, at least, 0.37 knots, 1.1 knots, 1.56 knots. Strange to think that this is progress, but it definitely warranted breakfast in the cockpit. Now, if you have looked at the good health page on this blog, you will see that the only reason I'm able to do all this at my age is because of my collection of natural supplements. I don't carry any pharmaceutical products at all, not even paracetamol. One of these supplements is a water-based curcumin. Usually it's only soluble in fat, which means you have to cook with it, get it into your system. Mine comes in a little plastic capsule, slightly fiddly to pick out of the pot if you put everything in there together, which is why, while picking out the krill oil and the plant-derived minerals and so on, some of this stuff ended up on the floor. Of course, I picked it up. It's not going to do me any good on the cockpit floor. If I had known what was going to happen next, I would have been rather more careful about making sure I picked up everything, that I didn't leave any capsules there to get squashed and to spew bright yellow water-soluble curcumin into the deep non-slip tread of my very expensive leather, not clammy, Dubarry boots. It would have been fine if I just stayed in the cockpit, or even gone below where I could tread the yellow all over the dark grey waterproof carpet. But no, after my special and quite delicious cold porridge with sultanas and apple, and even a nectarine since uh, they've all ripened at once, it seemed that 1.5 snix knots was no longer enough. The wind had veered some more, and there was no doubt she would carry the cruising chute. That's a palaver, I can tell you. Backwards and forwards to the foredeck, unlock the forehatch from below, go up, open it from above, pull out the sail, back to the cockpit to pay off the sheet, scrabbling around getting the endless line on the right side of the sausage. Sometimes I don't know why I bother, especially since ten minutes later the wind died and the whole thing was slopping around and threatening to wrap itself round the forestay. Safer to take it all down. Could leave it on deck, but better to do things properly, stick it below, and remember not to leave it sitting on top of the collapsible water can or that'll leak. So you can see how much activity there was, and with so much action taking place in the rigging, it was hardly surprising that I never looked at the deck. The grey deck, too pale by half, was now covered in random smears of bright yellow. And not just the deck, you can always scrub the deck, Every rope on the boat now seemed to be marked at intervals with bright yellow. At first glance, I thought it was the manufacturer's trademark. They haven't made plain white ropes since the 1970s, so I scrubbed the decks. I knew what it was. I've had this trouble before. Also, I knew to scrub my boots first. But then, the more I scrambled around scrubbing, the more the stuff seemed to spread. I scrubbed my boots again kneeling in the cockpit with a bucket of Atlantic to make sure I did a good job. That just seemed to make matters worse. In fact, when I crawled up to the foredeck to unhook the jib sheet from the anchor windlass, there seemed to be more than ever when I came back. It was somewhere around this point that I discovered a second crushed capsule, still oozing its bright yellow cargo, had somehow got itself stuck to my knee. 
It is now evening, but not yet late enough for the other half of last night's spaghetti puttanesca. Samsara is under all plain sail and making four knots in the right direction. The hatch is shut because the north wind is chilly for July and somehow it seems like it's been a busy day. I think I'll add the other half of Sunday night's tin of sweet corn. Sweet corn cheers you up. It's yellow. Won't you get bored by yourself all that time? Well, if there was a day to get bored, it was yesterday. Want to know how much progress we made? Seventeen miles. At this rate, the two-week voyage is going to take two months. But from the very first, three o'clock in the morning, it looked as if this was going to be a day of going nowhere. In fact, for pretty much the whole day the sails were furled. Samsara rolled through 50 degrees in a snappy two seconds, and it might have been fairly easy to sit wedged at the chart table and grumble. Yet somehow, that doesn't happen out here. We're now five days out in the Atlantic. It's three since I've seen a ship. I did pick up the world news from a shortwave radio station in Thailand. Did I hear that Boris Johnson had resigned over Brexit? But essentially, this is a bubble. The world has shrunk to 31 feet 10 inches by 8 foot 9. Time is measured not by the clock, but by meal times. So, what can I remember of yesterday? I do remember taking off all my clothes and wandering about the boat in the buff. It felt wonderful, until there was a creeping sensation of parts of me beginning to burn. Since a bit of maintenance gets done every day, this was clearly the occasion to tackle a really fiddly bit of wood stripping. It took nearly three hours, feet at awkward angles, braced against the incessant rolling but with a bit of inventiveness, including a Conway District Council library card to protect the instruments from the sandpaper, I managed to get it all done, and earned the reward of a corned beef sandwich with mayonnaise, pickles and HP sauce. And I've started to write another novel, ever since publishing the one from the attic on Amazon. There's a link on the blog. I felt this nagging urge to do a second one would really like to know if I'm any good at it, especially since number three son Owen graduated from the University of East Anglia's creative writing course. He has a whole lifetime ahead of him to make his mark as a writer. I seem to have spent mine producing reams of journalism, which somehow doesn't seem to count as a legacy in quite the same way. Although, if you're looking for real journalism, I can still quote you Vincent Mulcrum verbatim. So, out came the blue folder with its blank Sainsbury's low-price A4 ruled refill pad, and now the first 200 sheets contain a basic plot. Without any apparent effort, this was followed by a handful of characters, all pinched from real life. Mustn't forget to add a bit about any resemblance to persons living or dead. I'm going to do it in the right way this time. First chapter, synopsis. Last time I wrote 1,800 words before I sent it to anyone. Then they wanted it cut to 60,000. 
I've been so busy, I'm late for lunch. There is someone else aboard the boat now. A nice young lady. A pretty but homely blonde is the way I imagine her. Each morning she tells me, It's seven o'clock, or whatever time it happens to be. Whatever else I imagine about this situation, I leave to your imagination. Heaven knows how it's taken me so long to discover this feature on my phone, but there she was again this morning, telling me it was seven o'clock. It is now nearly twelve, and I cannot believe how much has happened in the last five hours. If anyone asks me, what do you do all the time, I shall tell them this. For a start, at seven o'clock this morning, it was raining. Hard. It was also blowing seventeen knots, which is about as much as you want with the light running sails up. The plotter was showing us belting along at between six and seven knots. And then I realised that was without the staysail drawing. The sheet had freed itself. So, on with the waterproof jacket. Don't worry about the bare legs, they'll dry and there's nobody to see. After that I decided I would have breakfast and then see if any sails needed to come down. At that moment the thunderstorm started. It wasn't very close, but close enough to put the phone in the oven. It all seems an odd thing to do. Put your phone in the oven, complete with homely blonde. The idea is that if the boat should be struck by lightning, every electronic device will be fried in a millisecond unless it is encased in a metal box. Personally, I think the whole idea sounds a bit suspect, but I'm not going to argue. The next thing you know, the wind has changed, and we're heading southwest. That means the running sails have to come down. This time, I don the trousers and the boots, and, clinging on with my fingernails to a foredeck which is now rolling through 60 degrees, I make the mistake of trying to douse the cruising chute with the wind too far aft and wrap it round the forestay. The resulting mess ends up in the cabin with the chute out of its sock, and the endless line wrapped six rhymes round everything while I dismantle two booms and get the staysail below where it soaks everything else. There is now no wind at all, and since I have a dinner to go to in Southampton in 18 days' time, on goes the engine, and I get to eat breakfast. By the time this is over, the wind is blowing ten knots from exactly the same direction it was before I took everything down. If only I hadn't been so keen, and had breakfast first. I looked at the tangled cruising chute and its sock and its endless line, now untied at one end and therefore by definition no longer endless, and wondered at the possibility of getting it sorted out. Of course, the only sensible thing to do was to hoist it, so, getting soaked in the process, I straightened it all out, stuffed it back in its bag, and hauled it on deck. I went up like a lamb and then I wasted half an hour rigging the boom and getting halfway through setting the staysail before realising the wind had changed again and we now needed the mainsail. So away went the staysail, still wet and soaking everything it touched, and up went the main. It is now nearly lunchtime and I feel I've spent the morning in the gym. Yesterday I turned the camera on myself and was surprised to see muscles
so I think I deserve a proper lunch. Although there are still some butter and tomatoes for sandwiches, today it shall be the traditional Sunday comfort lunch, eggs and beans on toast with coffee and HP sauce. After all, there's something to celebrate. We're heading in the right direction. Now, don't forget to look at the money page on the blog, oldmansailing.com. Meanwhile, let me read to you from my book, The Voyage, number one. Uh, this was the trip from the British Virgin Islands to Falmouth. And this is what we had on day 23, uh, by which time the distance sailed had amounted to 1,771 miles. Slight panic when I couldn't find the laptop. Then I remembered I'd put it in the oven last night because of the lightning all around the boat. I found the tablet in there as well while I was at it. But then I can be forgiven for being a bit disorientated. It was one of those nights. Typical thunderstorm weather. One minute flat calm and heavy rain, then fifteen knots from the north, followed by drizzle and five knots from the south. I had to have sails up and down, I think, three times. And, of course, that meant lifting the Aries out of the water, which is a pain because I have to hang upside down over the back end of the boat. Worse than that is putting it back and fitting the connecting rod into the ball joint without losing my fingers. Eventually I went to bed with what appeared to be a steady breeze and the boat tramping along in the right direction, only to wake at 0600 with everything flapping and banging down it all came again. At this point I called a conference in the nav station. I spread out the passage chart of the North Atlantic and demanded to know why there was no wind. The navigating officer, a supercilious little prick with a tendency to blame everyone but himself, announced, well it's obvious isn't it, we're sitting in a square with 15% calms for July, 15% of 31 days is 4.65 days. If you had agreed to my proposition for a more northerly course, nobody could recall any such proposition, we would now be in the square with only 7% calms, which represents 2.17 days. The snotty, who is not supposed to speak at all, piped up, well, that's easy. We just motor into the square with 7%. Everyone peered at the chart. He had a point, although nobody was going to admit it. We were right at the top of the calm square, just 30 miles to the border, in fact, with the next one. We had enough fuel for 30 miles. Of course, drawled the navigating officer, the figures represent the centre of the square, which is another 150 miles, a total of 180. We didn't have enough fuel for that. Not with getting into Pendennis Marina to pick up all the Amazon parcels I plan to order once the mobile signal turns up off the sillies. So what are we going to do then? This from number one, a lazy sod at the best of times. I'd had enough of this. We're a sailing boat, we'll bloody well sail, even if somebody has to spend the rest of the day at the helm. Everybody looked at everybody else. There was a good deal of grumbling as the hands turned out on deck to raise the sails and set the ship on a northerly heading. Then they all went below again to gather in mutinous conclave. Obviously, 
I had not ordered the self-steering deployed. All right, I forgot. But the boat will steer herself on the wind. Instead, I ordered the helm to be lashed and then had to go and do that myself. As I sit in my cabin awaiting the steward with my morning coffee, those lashings are still in place and the self-steering has yet to be deployed and yet we are heading for those 7% calms or as the snotty put it, 93% wind at a healthy three and a half knots. Thank you for listening to the Old Man Sailing Podcast. Don't forget the blog at oldmansailing.com and I look forward to talking to you next time.